Well, greetings, friends, for you in person here at Central Campus and for those that are joining us online. I want to say welcome. Glad that you're with us this Palm Sunday weekend. It's the first day of Holy Week in the church, as Pastor Wes had mentioned, and history shows in many places around the world on this day, Christians go on a public procession in the streets and proclaim and openly testify of their love and faith of Jesus Christ. 2,000 years ago on Palm Sunday, the week started off on a high note, but it would finish very differently. See, friends, at the end of that week, Jesus was going to be crucified. The same people who openly praised him as their king were going to reject him, mock him, scorn him, and nail him to a cross. Today, we're going to take a closer look at what happened on Palm Palm Sunday. So I want to read to you our passage for today's devotion. And so if you're able, would you please stand with me as we read Luke chapter 19, verses 28 to 40. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethsage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, go to the village ahead of you, And as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They replied, the Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the road. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began to joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your written word, and thank you for your spirit. As we dive into this word in the next few moments, Father, I pray that you would speak fresh truth to each of your sons and daughters as you would determine it. Thank you for this time today. We give you honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Please have a seat. I'm so grateful for the time Pastor Ashwin spent with me this week as we worked on this message together. He's preaching live at the Airdrie campus this morning. This passage that we read is often called the triumphant entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, and it's recorded in all four of the Gospels. There must have been close to 250,000 people in Jerusalem that week, many of them visitors coming from distant and far-off places to celebrate the Passover feast in the temple. So Jerusalem was a packed city. You need to know that there were two processions happening that day in Jerusalem. And there was quite a big difference between the two, quite a contrast, which I want to bring to your attention. One was a peasant procession. The other was an imperial procession. From the east end of the city, Jesus rode a donkey down the Mount of Olives, and he was being cheered by peasants, the ordinary folks of society. All along, Jesus had been hesitant to reveal his messianic identity, but on this day he made it public. The secret was unveiled. 
And everyone in the crowd hailed him as Messiah and gave him a red carpet welcome. Throngs of people were celebrating, shouting at the top of their voices, praising and saying, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And they spread palm leaves on the road. This prompted the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the time, to approach Jesus in the midst of this frenzy, and they wanted Jesus to rebuke those people for calling him the Messiah. Jesus' response was, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out, for Jesus knew what they were doing was right and appropriate. That was the first procession. The other procession, coming from the west end of the city, had Pontius Pilate riding in Jerusalem and in imperial style. It was a standard practice for Roman governors to be in the city of Jerusalem when a significant Jewish festival was taking place. Just in case they sensed trouble or rebellion, they could put an end to it by using force immediately. This procession had the finest horses, strongest soldiers who flaunted the power and impressiveness of the Roman Empire. They had armor, helmets, weapons, shields, banners and beating of drums in this procession. What was missing is there was no donkeys in this procession. No ordinary people. No one allowed because that was reserved for the elite, the who's who, the powerful, the rulers, not peasants and common folks. As you compare the two processions, processions, you realize that Jesus represented God's kingdom and Pontius Pilate represented the kingdom of this world. And they are complete opposites. Let's compare and contrast for our time. Pilate, first demonstrating all the pomp, power, and grandeur of the Roman Empire, he was also making a theological statement. See, the display was all about the king, King Caesar, who was considered to be the son of God and ruled over the entire world. The display of military power demonstrated that the Roman Empire would advance through the sheer use of force prideful, boastful, separate, and not caring about the people. Then, Jesus, the true Son of God, marched in in the other procession, without pomp and glory, without all of the things that the Romans were doing, and it demonstrated the true nature of Christ's kingdom, humble, approachable, available to everybody for the love of the people. So what did he ride in on? What vehicle did Jesus ride in on? Well, we read it. It, it, he rode in on a donkey. Now, to arrive in on a donkey symbolized peace. There was no intention of war or military conquest with this action. And this is a prophetic enactment of what had been foretold in the Old Testament in the book of Zechariah about 500 years before this time. Zechariah 9, 9 and 10 says this. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion, Shout, daughter Jerusalem, see, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on the colt, the foal of a donkey. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken, and he will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from from the river to the ends of the earth." Friends, when Jesus rode in the streets of Jerusalem on a donkey, he signified the launch of his kingdom. The kingdom extended from sea to sea. It encompassed from all of the earth. 
The Roman Empire faded in comparison to the size and might of Jesus and the kingdom. The scope and breadth of Jesus' kingdom is universal, but it would not advance through military power or conquest, but rather through the preaching of the gospel of peace and bringing hope to everyone that heard it. Palm Sunday was a significant day. This is when Jesus revealed his kingship, his messianic kingship, that he is the rightful Messiah, and that he will one day rule over all the nations with peace and harmony, not with power and might. And what did Jesus need in order to demonstrate this great truth to people? Well, he didn't need a war horse. He didn't need any of that. He, all he needed was a donkey. Now, Rome had no use for a donkey. The, donkey the Roman procession would have thinks its emperor on a donkey was a complete insult. But when Jesus rode on a donkey, he symbolically demonstrated that he would use ordinary instruments to advance his kingdom. For the rest of our time, I want to focus on that one section of our passage that, I, that, that we found very fascinating. It comes in, again, verse 29 to 34, as Jesus approached, as he approached Bethage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying, go into the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you're untying it, say the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as they had told them. And they were untying the colt. Its owners asked them, what are you, why are you untying that colt? And they replied, the Lord needs it. See, Jesus chose to ride a donkey in, in order to demonstrate the character of his kingdom. He asked his disciples to go and look for one. The disciples needed some faith and to be obedient in what Jesus asked them to do. And, and I kind of was thinking about that as I was preparing. I'm going, okay, what am I, I, I relate to, to Peter, the emotional one, the one that kind of outbursts and stuff. And I'm thinking, what was going through Peter's mind? I wonder if he was going, this is so dumb. Why are we going to look for a donkey? Who is this person? Do they even know we're coming? Why are we doing And he's muttering along the road as he goes to get this donkey. Now the instruction from Jesus was just that. You'll find a donkey never been ridden, tied to a post, untie it and bring it here. But then there was another part. And just before the owners of the donkey call 911, they say, the Lord needs it. Well, again, I kind of thought in my own mind, hmm, well, my friend Steve Hartke, uh, who over many years have restored a 1969 Chevy Chevelle, and it's an amazingly beautiful restored car. Now, can you imagine I go over at his house, and I take his keys without asking, and I start, and I turn that engine over, and it's got that purr and the roar, and I rev it a little bit, and then Steve comes out and says, why are you taking my car? And I just answer, God needs it. Friends, this is not going to go well. Steve loves me, knows me, but that's not going to go well. See, friends, the owners of the donkey must have known Jesus, trusted in his credibility. There must have been some sort of arrangement that was known, and the disciples just needed to have faith and obedience to do what Jesus asked. And with no fuss, the disciples were able to take the donkey. Now, the donkey was needed to fulfill that critical prophecy of Scripture that I read to you from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. See, without the donkey, the triumphant entry would not be the same. 
The donkey of all animals had something to contribute to the grand scheme of this triumphal entry. G.K. Chesterton, the English writer and philosophy, wrote a poem called The Donkey. I'd never read the poem until working with Pastor Ashwin on this sermon, but it had a profound impact on him when he was young. The poem is basically the donkey speaking. Chesterton describes how the donkey has always been looked down by, by people, considered to be an unpleasant creature. And in many parts of the world today, donkeys are just used to carry heavy loads and no one really admires them. In fact, in the first service, one of our congregation came up and showed me a picture of a donkey in Israel. In Jesus' time, no one had them as pets. They were just put to hard work. A Turkish proverb captures how the world perceives a donkey. A worthy man is still worthy, even penniless. A donkey is a donkey, even if he is finally saddled. The first three stanzas of this poem emphasize the donkey's strange looks. The head of a donkey looks monstrous, and when the donkey brays, it's not pleasant music, it's a, it's a sickening cry. Look at the donkey's ears, like angels' wings, long and elevated. Donkeys are known for their stubbornness, defiance, rebelliousness. The donkey in Chesterton's poem has a low self-image. It admits that it's dumb, useless, and not worth being cared for. But in the final stanza, the donkey says, there is a secret that I keep to myself. Fools, he says, for I also had my hour. One far fierce hour and sweet, there was a shout above my ears and palms before my feet. The donkey struggled with self-low worth, not being valued, not contributing to society. It had been insulted and humiliated by people all along. A small, stubborn, weird-looking animal. And even in today, on a, on a popular television show, the host of this television show will berate people by calling them donkeys to the point where they are making them cry. It's, de it's demeaning, it's, it's humiliating to these people. But in spite of all this, the donkey became a vehicle for Jesus. It's the characteristic of the kingdom of God. And it was not Jesus who just was the center of attention, but in some small way, as we look at that story, that the donkey was honored. As I read this passage, I said to myself, if the Lord can use an ordinary donkey, there is hope for me. But there's hope for you too. And I find hope, friends, in the ordinary. It's where it's least expected. Just as Jesus needed a donkey to communicate the truth about his character and his kingdom, to describe its simplicity that it's for everybody, Jesus has always been on the lookout for ordinary people. They are the best ambassadors of his kingdom. For a lot of my life, even as I prepared for this message with Pastor Ashwin, I found myself believing lies about myself. Struggling and comparing myself, going, I'm not a Pastor Ashwin. I'm certainly not a Pastor Henry. Do my contributions really matter? Why am I doing this? And I actually said it to many people, going, I don't really, really look forward to preaching like this, not sure about things. Beat myself up over it. But see, many of us struggle with feelings of self-worth. Like the donkey in the poem, we feel wrong on the inside. Like I'm not happy with the way I look. Not happy with the gifts and talents. I don't have this, I don't have that. Not happy with where we are in life. Not happy with accomplishments or relationships. 
All around us, we hear me- regular messages that tell us that we don't measure up. Our, our, ad- our advertisers tell us that we don't look good enough. We're not smart enough. We lack this. We lack that. You need this. You need that. That's the kingdom of the world. There's so much pressure on us to keep up to this kingdom. Pastor Ashwin shared a story when we were preparing of he and Eboli heading to one of the local malls as they were going to do some shopping for some children's clothes. And as he tells it to me, he says, Wayne, it's one of my least favorite things to do, and so many times I get bored doing it. So when I'm getting bored, I start to look for sermon illustrations. I said, that's, that's Pastor Ashwin. <laughs> He's looking around, and he sees these kids' athletic shirts for sale. And, and he takes note of some of their slogans. Here's some of a few of them. I let my talent do the talking. Best in the business, unbeatable, breaking records. Well, friends, if a five-year-old kid wears that on a sporting field, can you imagine the unrealistic expectations that he or she might be carrying? Isn't it a surprise that we base our self-worth on our performance? Friends, that's me. I have lived in that lie on and off for so many years that I'm defined by what I do. And when our performance is not at its best, when we compare it with others, it results in deep-rooted insecurities that basically tattoo into our soul. It starts dictating how we look and see at ourselves. So many times we conclude, I don't have exceptional gifts or talents. I don't have what it takes. I'm not like them. I'm not like her. I can't accomplish much for God's kingdom. I'm not sure Jesus can use me. But the kingdom of God is not about pomp and show. It's not about resumes. It's not about being the best. It's about ordinary people being used for God's extraordinary purposes. And in those moments, friends, as I had to even just preparing for this, when you feel that, when you feel inadequate, when you start comparing yourself, you feel like you don't have value, I want to encourage you just to be still and hear the voice of Jesus saying, that's not the truth. Because here's the thing, Jesus never accuses you. He only affirms you. He says, I love you. You're my beloved. I need you to be part of my kingdom. So if you struggle with low self-worth or esteem, you're not alone. So many characters in the Bible struggled with these things and more, including a lack of belief, self-worth, and at the end of my message, I'm gonna point out how God used them in spite of their shortcomings. Look what Paul says about the people who God has called to be his own. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 29. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential, not many of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may, be, may boast before him. The Jewish and religious leaders of that time thought that the good news of Jesus was foolish because they expected the Messiah to break the chains of the Roman Empire. They wanted a political liberator, so they rejected Jesus. The Romans scoffed at a notion that a crucified criminal could be the savior of the world. But God embraces Ordinary people. 
the ones who don't often get to be in the spotlight and makes them the most amazing representatives of the kingdom of God. Let me tell you, friends, we're not gonna impress God on that day when we stand before him with our resumes. He's gonna be looking at our hearts going, what did you do with what I gave you? Not with what I didn't give you. In an article on the internet entitled, God Will Use Even You, the writer puts it this way. We need to remember that God uses the foolish. God picks the scrawniest little girl to lead off her kickball team. God chooses the custodian with a heavy accent to share the gospel and save lives. God uses the overwhelmed and disheveled mother to nurture her children into spiritual giants. God commissions the, re the retiree to uphold dozens, even hundreds of missionaries serving on the field. God calls the autistic man to give the most profound articulation of his simple faith. He goes on to say, if your resume is sparse, your intellect feeble, your skills unimpressive, and your wisdom just average, fret not, God can and will use you. Amen. The creator of the universe needs us and wants to demonstrate his hope and glory to the world through you, through me, through us. And yes, he's all-powerful, and he's not dependent on any creature. God, by definition, doesn't need anything, but he has chosen to carry out this life-changing message and his plans through, or through ordinary human instruments. <coughs> Last week, I lost a friend. You heard Pastor West pray for his family, the family of Tom Jones. This is Tom. Tom served here at Center Street Church for many years in the cafe, and he was, a, he was a, a, an integral part of the special needs ministry. He was an inspiration to me for his servant heart. He had the ability to make me feel like I was the most important person in the world any time I saw him. I would come and see him at work, and he'd be in the cafe, and he'd be cleaning tables. He'd be doing all the different things, filling up stuff like that. And he'd always say to me, hi, buddy. Hi, Wayne. How's my buddy today? And he would always walk over and give me this amazing hug. I've said on many occasions in my life when I felt beat up and I felt like I didn't matter at all and I would start going down that road that I'm only defined by what I do and this, that, and the other thing, I would go to Tom's uh, group. He had had a group, a small group on Monday nights and I would go to see him and his, and his friends. <coughs> Excuse me. And I would always feel absolutely loved. By the world's standards, Tom had a disability. I think I was the one that had a disability. He taught me how to love unconditionally. I'll be leading his celebration of life on April 22nd. And I got the news that he passed away when I was on holidays a week ago. And as I started thinking about this message, then something came to me, a moment, when I had the honor, many years ago, of going on a missions trip with Tom and his friends from the Monday night group. And we got to minister in Mexico to numerous ministries. One of them was called the Foundation Down, an organization to support families who have children of Down syndrome. Throughout the year, Tom would raise money for this organization and committed what he had to make a difference. During the mission trip, Tom was asked to share. And Tom prepared his speech, as he liked to call it, He'd put it on cue cards, and we'd practiced, and he was all ready to go, and he would say, I'm Tom Jones, the speaker, not Tom Jones, the singer. 
And Tom would share with these families of his life and what he did, who he loved and who loved him, and how his life was so much more than being defined as a person who had Down syndrome. The parents that were listening to this would be in tears. See, friends, in Mexico, those with a disability are not seen in the same value and therefore, it didn't have, it, it was just a different context. Them seeing Tom share and bring hope to them was incredible. So many tears in their eyes. Through his life, he inspired those families and brought so much hope to them by just him being him. Tom Jones was an imitatable example of the hope that we can bring to people. <laughs> by being good with who we are and what God's done in our lives and what he's provided for us, I will miss my friend very much. But the lessons he taught me will stay with me for the rest of my life here on earth and I'm looking forward to that day. I want to get to see him again in heaven because he's there. In 1 Peter 3.15, it says, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. God used Tom for extraordinary purposes by bringing the hope he had in Jesus in and through his life to other people. You may think you don't have much to give or you're small in your own eyes, but God wants to use you and your uniquenesses for his purpose. So many of us can, you know, and I can relate, that our identity comes from our work on what we do. But see, during this time of the pandemic, so much has been taken away. So many have felt unproductive. And then we struggle with our identity because we can't seem to produce or do. We may ask ourselves, can I still be useful for God? Am I needed? And of course you are. God needs you just as he needed the donkey to carry him through the streets of Jerusalem. And when you understand this, and when you live in this truth, it'll be the most freeing, liberating, joyous thing in the world. Whatever stage of life you are on, the Lord needs you, and he wants to use your life for his purposes. That's what matters. You're valuable to God. You have a mission and a purpose. You're precious and worth more in the eyes of God than anything else. Now, how do I know that? Well, I know, I know that, and I'm glad you asked that. The triumphant entry into Jerusalem would result in Jesus' death five days later. The same crowd who shouted Hosanna would say, crucify him. Yet Jesus said, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. He died the most horrifying death you could possibly imagine to save the very folks who wanted to get rid of him. The worth of a product is seen in the price you're willing to pay for it. I'll say it again. The worth of a product is seen in the price you're willing to pay for it. And God was willing to give the life of his only, his only son in exchange for you and me. Clearly, God was making a statement through Jesus' death. This is how much I love you. You can never understand the character of God, friends, outside the cross of Christ. If you're willing, if he was willing to give his life for you, surely you are valuable. Surely you are useful. Surely he wants you to be part of this. And I want to challenge you today to see yourself as God sees you, not as the world sees you or it defines you, or even perhaps the way you see yourself. From the website Bible.org, 
There's an article called God Can Use All of Us. I've used it in sermons before. I want to read it to, to you to remind you of how God used people in spite of what their circumstances and stuff was going on. Abraham lied. Sarah laughed at God's promises. Moses stuttered. David's armor didn't fit. John Mark was rejected by Paul. Timothy had ulcers. Hosea's wife was a prostitute. Amos's only training was in the school of fig tree pruning. Jacob was a liar. David had an affair. Solomon was too rich. Jesus was too poor. Abraham was too old. David was too young. Peter was afraid of death. Lazarus was dead. John was self-righteous. Naomi was a widow. Paul was a murderer. So was Moses. Jonah ran from God. Miriam was a gossip. Gideon and Thomas both doubted. Jeremiah was depressed and suicidal. Elijah was burned out. John the Baptist was a loudmouth. Martha was a worrywart. Mary may have been lazy. Samson had long hair. Noah got drunk. Did I mention Moses had a short fuse? So did Peter. So did Paul. So did lots of folks. He goes on to say, God doesn't look at our financial gain or loss. He's not prejudiced or partial. He's not sassy or brassy. He's not deaf to our cry, and he's not blind to our faults. He gives gifts to us that are free, and we can do wonderful things for others and still not feel wonderful about ourselves. Satan says, you're not worthy. Jesus says, so what? I am. Satan looks back and sees our mistakes. God looks back and sees the cross. In 2 Corinthians 10, 5, friends, we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ. Friends, don't let those lies, those accusations, and those arguments, give them to Jesus so he can bring freedom. Give what you're going to to him. We're going to sing a song in response to this. Let let Jesus speak over you today.